0: My name is Jonathan Pezza, and welcome to episode 7 of the weekly podcast, Pulp, where we take a journey, one page at a time, through the literary underground of pulp fiction. You can't talk about pulp literature and not acknowledge this next genre we're going to dive into today. Hard-boiled mystery. Cops, gumshoes, private eyes, and detectives— slinging that oh-so-unique slangy dialogue while standing as the thin blue line against the societal underbelly of violent crime. The detective mystery genre was arguably the most popular of all the pulp genres, with scores of titles released every week or month with names like Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine, Spicy Detective, Detective Story, Detective Tales, Detective Mystery, Mammoth Mystery, and True Detective, that last one should sound familiar to all you HBO fans. It was very big business. But the crown jewel in this genre was a magazine called Black Mask because it fostered two of the most influential writers in the genre, Raymond Chandler and today's author, Dashiell Hammett. The things that set Hardboiled apart from predecessors like Arthur Conan Doyle was that the genre is defined by its no-sugar-coated presentation of violence, sex, and the danger of the emerging criminal class of the 1920s and 1930s. Every day, newspapers at the time printed crime stories of elaborate bank robberies, bootleggers, and gunfights. As names like Babyface Nelson, Al Capone, and Bonnie and Clyde became folk antiheroes, so naturally, the public's thirst for these types of stories grew to epic levels. People craved the grimy, visceral experience that the newspapers only hinted at. And so, the pulps expanded on it and presented the stories in all their realistic, gruesome glory. And out of that grew the hard-boiled detective. But don't by any means think that this genre has gone away. It is alive and thriving today in the form of TV shows like Mindhunter, Hannibal, Fargo, Bosch, Cold Case, Criminal Minds, The Wire this list literally goes on forever. The modern crime genre is the hard-boiled murder mystery repackaged and reconfigured and sold to you a million different ways. Why? Because just like the readers of yesteryear, we love to revel in those gritty details that amplify our hidden dark sides. Today's story is Bodies Piled Up by Dashiell Hammond and it was originally published in the December 1, 1923 issue of Black Mask. Hammett himself lived an incredibly interesting life, and drew from his experiences working as an operative for the Pinkerton Detective Agency, as well as service in both World War I and World War II to create the realism he presented in his stories. He is also notably recognized for his political activism as an early anti-fascist and open supporter of communism, Like many activists of his time, Hammett was investigated by Congress in the 1950s and eventually blacklisted under the McCarthyism movement. Bodies Piled Up features one of Hammett's most famous characters, an unnamed private detective known only as the Continental Op. The Continental Op is considered one of the very first hard-boiled detectives and was featured in 36 stories written between 1923 and 1930. Okay, it's time to give up the dope and get to the goods. This story includes graphic violence and content along the lines of an R-rated film. So, without further ado, grab your trench coat, dust off the fedora, sit back, turn out the lights, and let me tell you a story. The Montgomery Hotel's regular detective had taken his last week's rake off from the hotel bootlegger in merchandise instead of cash had drunk it down, and had fallen asleep in the lobby, and been fired. I happened to be the only idle operative in the Continental Detective Agency's San Francisco branch at the time, and thus it came about that I had three days of hotel coppering while a man was being found to take the job permanently. The Montgomery is a quiet hotel of a better sort, and so I had a very restful time of it. Until the third and last day then things changed. I came down to the lobby that afternoon to find Stacy, the assistant manager on duty at the time, hunting for me. One of the maids just phoned that there's something wrong in 906, he said. We went up to the room together. The door was open. In the center of the floor stood a maid, staring googly-eyed at the closed door of the clothes press. From under it, extending perhaps a foot across the floor toward us, was a snake-shaped ribbon of blood. I stepped past the maid and tried the door. It was unlocked. I opened it. Slowly, rigidly, a man pitched out backward, and there was a six-inch slit down the back of his coat, and the coat was wet and sticky. That wasn't altogether a surprise. The blood on the floor had prepared me for something of that sort. But when another one followed him, facing me, this one with a purple, distorted face, I dropped the one I had caught and jumped back. And as I jumped, a third man came tumbling out after the others. From behind me came a scream and a thud as the maid fainted. I wasn't feeling any too sturdy myself. I'm no sensitive plant, and I've looked at a lot of unlovely sights in my time, but for weeks afterwards, I could see those three dead men coming out of the clothes press to pile at my feet. Coming out slowly, almost deliberately, in a ghastly game of follow the leader. Seeing them, you couldn't really doubt that they were really dead. Every detail of their falling, every detail of the heap in which they now lay had a horrible certainty of lifelessness in it. I turned to Stacy who Deathly White himself was keeping on his feet only by clinging to the foot of the brass bed. Get the woman out. Get doctors. Police. I pulled the three dead bodies apart, laying them out in a grim row, faces up. Then I made a hasty examination of the room. A soft hat which fitted one of the dead men lay in the center of the unruffled bed. The room key was in the door. On the inside... There was no blood in the room anywhere except where it had leaked from the clothes press, and the room showed no signs of having been the scene of a struggle. The door to the bathroom was open. In the bottom of the bathtub was a shattered gin bottle, which from the strength of the odor and the dampness of the tub had been nearly full when broken. In one quarter of the bathroom I found a small whiskey glass and another under the tub. Both were dry, clean, and odorless. The inside of the clothes press was stained with blood from the height of my shoulder to the floor, and two hats lay in the puddle of blood on the closet floor. Each of the hats fitted one of the dead men. That was all. Three dead men, a broken gin bottle, blood. Stacy returned presently with the doctor, and while the doctor was examining the dead men, the police detectives arrived. The doctor's work was soon done. This man he said pointing to one of them, was struck on the back of the head with a small blunt instrument and then strangled. This one, pointing to the other, was simply strangled, and the third was stabbed in the back with a blade perhaps five inches long. They have been dead for about two hours since noon or a little after. The assistant manager identified two of the bodies, The man who had been stabbed, the first to fall out of the clothes press, had arrived at the hotel three days before, registering as Tudor Ingram of Washington, D.C., and had occupied room 915, three doors away. The last man to fall out, the one who had simply been choked, was the occupant of this room. His name was Vincent Devlin. He was an insurance broker who had made the hotel his home since his wife's death some four years before. The third man had been seen in Devlin's company frequently, and one of the clerks remembered that they had come into the hotel together about five minutes after twelve that day. Cards and letters in his pocket told us that he was Homer Ansley, a member of the law firm of Lancashire and Ansley, whose offices were in the Miles building, next door to Devlin's office, in fact. Devlin's pockets held between 150 and $200. Ansley's wallet contained more than a 1000 Ingram's pocket yielded nearly $300, and in the money belt around his waist we found 2200 and two medium-sized unset diamonds. All three had watches, Devlin's was a valuable one, in their pockets, and Ingram wore two rings, both of which were expensive. Ingram's room key was in his pocket. Beyond this, uh, money whose presence would seem to indicate that the robbery hadn't been the motive behind the three killings, we found nothing on any of their persons to throw the slightest light on the crime. Nor did the most thorough examination of both Ingram's and Devlin's rooms teach us anything. In Ingram's room, we found a dozen or more packs of carefully marked cards, some crooked dice, and an immense amount of data on racehorses. Also, we found out that he had a wife who lived on East Delavan Avenue in Buffalo, and a brother on Crutcher Street in Dallas, as well as a list of names and addresses that we carried off to investigate later. But nothing in either room pointed, even indirectly, at murder. Fells, the police department pertillion man, found a number of fingerprints in Devlin's room, but we couldn't tell whether they would be of any value or not until we had worked them up. Though Devlin and Ansley had apparently been strangled by hands, Fell was unable to get prints from either of their necks or their collars. The maid who had discovered the blood said that she had straightened up Devlin's room between ten and eleven in the morning, but had not put fresh towels in the bathroom. It was for this purpose that she had gone into the room in the afternoon. She had found the door unlocked, with the key on the inside. And, as soon as she entered, she had seen the blood and telephoned Stacy. She had seen no one in the corridor nearby as she entered the room. She had straightened up Ingram's room, she said, at a few minutes after one. She had gone there earlier, between 10.30 and 10.45 for that purpose, but Ingram had not yet left then. The elevator man, who had carried Asley and Devlin up from the lobby at a few minutes after 12, remembered that they had been laughing and discussing their golf scores of the previous day during the ride. No one had seen anything suspicious in the hotel around the time at which the doctor had placed their murders, but that was to be expected. The murderer could have left the room, closing the door behind him, and walked away secure in the knowledge that at noon, a man in the corridors of the Montgomery would attract little attention. If he was staying at the hotel, he would simply have gone to his room. If not, he would have either walked all the way down to the street, or down a floor or two, and then caught the elevator. None of the employees had ever seen Ingram or Devlin together. There was nothing to show that they had even the slightest acquaintance. Ingram habitually stayed in his room until noon, and did not return until very late at night. Nothing was known of his affairs. At the Miles Building, we, that is, Mario O'Hara and George Dean of the Police Department Homicide Detail and I, questioned Ansley's partner and Devlin's employees. Both Devlin and Ansley, it seemed, were ordinary men who lived ordinary lives. Lives that held neither dark spots nor odd kinks. Ansley was married and had two children. He lived on Lake Street. Both men had a sprinkling of relatives and friends scattered here and there throughout the country, and so far as we could learn, their affairs were in perfect order. They had left their offices this day to go to a luncheon together, intending to visit uh, Devlin's room first for a drink apiece from a bottle of gin somebody coming from Australia had smuggled into him. Well, O'Hara said when we were on the street again, This much is clear. If they went up to Devlin's room for a drink, it's a cinch
1: that they were killed almost as soon as they got into the room. Those whiskey glasses you found were clean and dry. Whoever turned the trick must have been waiting for him. I
0: wonder about this fellow Ingram. I was wondering that too, I said, figuring it out from the positions I found them in when I opened the closet door. Ingram sizes up as the key to the whole thing. Devlin was back against the wall and Ansley in front of him, both facing the door. Ingram was facing them with his back to the door. The clothes press was just large enough for the three of them to be packed in it, too small for any of them to slip down while the door was closed. Then there was no blood in the room except for what had come from the clothes press. Ingram, with that gaping
1: slit in his back, couldn't have been stabbed until he was in the closet, or he'd have bled elsewhere. He was standing close to the other men when he was knifed, and whoever knifed him
0: closed the door quickly afterward. Now, why should he have been standing in such a position? Do you dope it out that he and another killed the two friends, and that while he was stowing the bodies in the closet, his accomplice finished him off? Maybe, Maybe, Dean said. And that maybe was still as far as we had gotten three days later. We had sent and received bales of telegrams, had relatives and acquaintance of the dead men interviewed, and we had found nothing that seemed to have any bearing upon their deaths, nor had we found the slightest connecting link back to Ingram or the other two. We had traced those other two step by step almost to their cradles. We had accounted for every minute of the time since Ingram had arrived in San Francisco, thoroughly enough to convince us that neither of them had met Ingram. Ingram, we had learned, was a bookmaker and all-around crooked gambler. His wife and he had separated but were on good terms. Some 15 years before, he had been convicted of assault with intent to kill in Newark, New Jersey, and had served two years in the state prison. But the man he had assaulted, one John Pello, had died of pneumonia in Omaha in 1914. Ingram had come to San Francisco for the purpose of opening a gambling club, and all of our investigations had tended to show that his activities while in the city had uh, been towards that end alone. The fingerprints Fells had secured had all turned out to belong to Stacy the maid, the police detectives, or myself. In short, we had found nothing. So much for our attempts to learn the motive behind the three murders. We now drop that angle and settle down to the detail-studying, patience taxing grind of picking up the murderer's trail. From any crime to its author, there is a trail. It may be, as in this case, obscure, but since matter cannot move without disturbing other matter along its path, there always is. There must be a trail of some sort, and finding and following such trails is what a detective is paid to do. In the case of murder, it is possible sometimes to take a shortcut to the end of the trail by first finding the motive. A knowledge of the motive often reduces the field of possibilities, sometimes points directly to the guilty one, and it is on this account that murderers are, as a rule, more easily apprehended than any other class of criminals. But a knowledge of the motive isn't indispensable. Quite a few murder mysteries are solved without its help. And in a fair proportion, say 10-20% to 20% of cases where men are convicted justly of murder, the motive isn't clearly shown even at the last, and sometimes is hardly guessed at. So far all we knew about the motive in the particular case we were dealing with was that it hadn't been robbery. Unless something we didn't know about had been stolen something of significant value to make the murderer scorn the money in his victim's pockets. We hadn't altogether neglected the search for the murderer's trail, of course, but, being human, we had devoted most of our attention to trying to find a shortcut. Now, we set out to find our man, or men, regardless of what had urged him or them to commit the crimes. Of the people who had been registered at the hotel on the day of the killing, there were nine men of whose innocence we hadn't found a reasonable amount of proof. Four of these were still in the hotel, and only one of that four interested us very strongly. That one, a big raw-boned man of 45 or 50, who had registered as a J.J. Cooper of Anaconda, Montana, wasn't, we had definitely established, really a mining man as he pretended to be, and our telegraphic communications with Anaconda failed to show that he was known there. Therefore, we were having him shadowed, with few results. Five of the nine men had departed since the murder, three of them leaving forward addresses with the mail clerk. Gilbert Jackamart, who had occupied room 946 and had ordered his mail forwarded to him at a Los Angeles hotel. W. F. Salway, who had occupied room 1022, had given instructions that his mail be readdressed to a number on Clark Street in Chicago. Ross Orrit, room 609, had asked to have his mail sent to him care of general delivery at the local post office. Jackamard had arrived at the hotel two days before and had left on the afternoon of the murders. Salway had arrived the day before the murders and had left a day after them. Orit had arrived on the day of the murders and left the following day. Sending telegrams to have the first two found and investigated, I went after Orit, myself. A musical comedy named What For was being widely advertised just then with gaily printed plum-colored handbills. I got one of them, and had a stationery store and envelope to match, and mailed it to Orrit at the Montgomery Hotel. There are concerns that make a practice of securing the names of arrivals at the principal hotels and mailing them advertisements. I trusted that Orrit knowing this wouldn't be suspicious when my gaudy envelope forwarded from the hotel reached him through the general delivery window. Dick Foley, the agency's shadow specialist, planted himself in the post office to loiter around with an eye on the O window till he saw my plum-colored envelope passed out, and then to shadow the receiver. I spent the next day trying to solve the mysterious J.J. Cooper's game, but he was still a puzzle and I knocked off that night. At a little before five on the following morning, Dick Foley dropped into my room on his way home to wake me and tell me what he had done for
2: himself. This or it, baby, is our meat, he said. Picked him up when he got his mail yesterday afternoon. Got another letter beside yours. He's got an apartment on Van Vanass Avenue. Took it the day after the killing under the name B.T. Quinn. Packing a gun under the left arm, there's that uh, sort of bulge there. Just went home to bed, been visiting all the dives in North Beach. Who do you think he's hunting for? Who? Guy Cudner. That was news. This
0: Guy Cudner, alias the Dark Man, was the most dangerous bird on the coast, if not in the country. He had only been nailed once. But if he had been convicted of all the crimes that everybody knew he had committed, he'd have needed half a dozen lives to crowd his sentences into, beside another half dozen to carry the gallows. However... He decidedly had the right sort of backing, enough to buy him everything he needed in the way of witnesses, alibis, even juries, and so the talk went an occasional judge. I don't know what went wrong with his support on that one time he was convicted up north and sent over for a 1-14 to 14 year hitch, but it adjusted itself promptly, for the ink was hardly dry on the press notices of his conviction before he was let loose on parole.
2: Is Cutner in town? Don't know, Dick said. But this orator Quinn or whatever his name is is surely hunting for him. In Rick's place at Wop Healy's and Bugatti's, Porky Grout tipped me off. Says Aurith doesn't know Cudner by sight but is trying to find him. Porky didn't know what he wants with him. This Porky Grout was a
0: dirty little rat who would sell out his family if he ever had one for the price of a flop. But with these lads who play both sides of the game, it's always a question of which side they're playing when you think they're playing yours.
2: Think Porky was coming clean? I asked. Chances are, but you can't gamble on him. Is Ord acquainted here? Doesn't seem so. Knows where he wants to go, but has to ask how to get there. Hasn't spoken to anybody that seemed to know him.
0: What's he like?
2: Not the kind of egg you'd want to tangle with offhand, if you ask me. He and Cutner would make a good pair. They don't look alike. This egg is tall and slim, but he's built right. Those fast, loose muscles. Faces sharp without being thin, if you get me. I mean, all the lines in it are straight, no curves, chin, nose, mouth, eyes, all straight sharp lines and angles. Looks like the kind of egg Cutner is. Make a good pair. Dresses well, doesn't look like a rowdy, but harder than hell. A big game hunter. Our meat, I
0: bet you. Doesn't look bad, I agreed. He came to the hotel the morning of the day the men were killed, and checked out the next morning. He packs a rod and changed his name after he left. And now he's paired off with the dark man. It doesn't look bad at all.
2: I'm telling you, Dick said, this fella looks like three killings wouldn't disturb his rest any. I wonder where Cutner fits in.
0: I can't guess, but if he and Orid weren't connected yet, then Cutner wasn't in on the murders. But he may give us the answers. Then I jumped out of bed. I'm going to gamble on Porky's dope being on the level. How would you describe Cutner?
2: You know him better than I do. Yeah, but how would you describe him to me if I didn't know him? Little fat guy with a red forked scar on his left cheek, what's the idea?
0: It's a good one, I admitted. That scar makes all the difference in the world. If he didn't have it and you were to describe him to me, you'd go into all sorts of details about his appearance, but he has it. So you say, short little fat guy with a scar on his cheek. It's ten to one that that's just how he's been described to Orit. I don't look like Cudner, but I'm his size and build, and with a scar on my cheek, he'll fall for me. What then? There's no telling, but I ought to be able to learn a lot if I can get Ort talking to me as Cudner. It's worth a try, anyway.
2: You can't get away with that, not here in San Francisco. Cudner is too well known. What difference does it make, Dick? Ort is the only one I want to fool. And if
0: he takes me for Cudner, well and good. And if he doesn't, still well and good. I won't force myself on him. How are you going to fake the scar? Easy. We have pictures of Kudner showing the scar in the criminal gallery. I'll get some collodion that's sold at the drugstores under several trade names for putting on cuts and scratches. I'll color it and imitate Kudner's scar on my cheek. It dries with a red shiny surface and put on thick it'll stand out just enough to look like an old scar. It was a little after 11 the following night when Dick telephoned me that Orrit was in Pagetti's place on Pacific Street and apparently settled there for some little while. My scar already painted on, I jumped into a taxi and within a few minutes was talking to Dick around the corner from Pagetti's.
2: He's sitting at the last table in the back on the left, and he was alone when I came out. You can't miss him. He's the only egg in the joint with a clean collar.
0: You better stick outside. Half a block or so away with the taxi, I told Dick. Maybe Orin and I leave together, and I'd just as leave have you standing by in case things break wrong. Pagetti's place is a long, narrow, low-ceilinged cellar always dim with smoke. Down the middle runs a narrow strip of bare floor for dancing. The rest of the floor is covered with closely packed tables whose cloths are always soiled. And the management hasn't yet verified the rumor that the country has gone dry. Most of the tables were occupied when I came in and half a dozen couples were dancing. Few of the faces to be seen were strangers to the morning lineup at police headquarters. Peering through the smoke, I saw Orrit at once, seated alone in a far corner, looking at the dancers with the set blank face of one who masks an all-seeing watchfulness. I walked down the other side of the room and crossed the strip of dance floor directly under the light so that the scar might be clearly visible to him. Then I selected a vacant table not far from his and sat down facing him. Ten minutes passed while he pretended an interest in the dancers, and I affected a thoughtful stare at the dirty cloth on my table. But neither of us missed so much as a flicker of the other's lids. His eyes, gray eyes that were pale without being shallow, with black needlepoint pupils, met mine after a while in a cold, steady, inscrutable stare. And... Very slowly, he got to his feet. One hand, his right, inside the side pocket of his dark coat. He walked straight across to my table and sat down opposite me. Kudner! Looking for me, I hear, I replied, trying to match the icy smoothness of his voice as I was matching the steadiness of his gaze. He sat down with his left side turned slightly towards me which put his right arm at not too cramped a position for straight shooting from the pocket that still held his hand. You were looking for me, too. I didn't know what the correct answer to that would be, so I just grinned. But the grin didn't come from my heart. I had, I realized, made a mistake. One that might cost me something before we were done. This bird wasn't hunting for Cudner as a friend, as I had carelessly assumed, but was on a warpath. I saw those three dead men falling out of the closet in room 906. My gun was inside the waistband of my trousers where I could get at it quickly, but his was in his hand. So I carefully kept my own hands motionless on the edge of the table, while I widened my grin. His eyes were changing now, and the more I looked at them the less I liked them. The grey in them had darkened and grown duller, and the pupils were larger and white crescents were shown beneath the gray. Twice before I had looked into eyes such as these, and I hadn't forgotten what they meant. The eyes of a congenital killer. Suppose you speak your piece, I suggested after a while. But he wasn't to be beguiled into idle conversation. He shook his head a mere fraction of an inch, and the corners of his compressed mouth dropped down a trifle. The white crescents of eyeballs were growing broader, pushing the gray circles up under the upper lids. It was coming. There was no waiting for it. I drove a foot into his shins under the table, and at the same time pushed the table into his lap and threw myself across it. The bullet from his gun went off to one side. Another bullet, not from his gun, thudded into the table that was upended between us. I had him by the shoulders when the second shot from behind took him in the left arm, just below my hand. I let go then and fell away, rolling over against the wall and twisting around to face the direction at which the bullets were coming. I twisted around just in time to see, jerking out of sight behind a corner of the passage that gave to a small dining room Guy Kuttner's scarred face. As it disappeared, a bullet from Orits' gun splattered the plaster from the wall where it had been. I grinned at the thought of what must be going on in Orits' head as he lay sprawled out on the floor confronted by two Kuttners but then he took a shot at me, and I stopped grinning. Luckily, he had to twist around to fire at me, putting his weight on his wounded arm, and the pain made him wince, spoiling his aim. Before he had adjusted himself more comfortably, I had scrambled on hands and knees to Bagetti's kitchen door, only a few feet away, and had myself safely tucked out of range around an angle in the wall. All but my eyes and the top of my head, which I risked so that I might see what went on. Or it was now ten or twelve feet from me, lying flat on the floor, facing Kudner, with a gun in his hand and another on the floor beside him. Across the room, perhaps thirty feet away, Kudner was showing himself around his protective corner at brief intervals to exchange shots with the man on the floor, occasionally sending one my way. We had the place to ourselves. There were four exits and the rest of Baggetti's customers had used them all. I had my gun out, but I was playing a waiting game. Kudner, I figured, had been tipped off to Orit's search for him, and had arrived on scene with no mistaken identity to the other's attitude. Just what was between them and what bearing it had on the Montgomery murders was a mystery to me, but I didn't try to solve it now. I kept away from the bullets that were flying as best I could and waited. They were firing in unison. Cutter would show around his corner and both men's weapons would spit, and he would duck out of sight again. Orrit was bleeding about the head now and one of his legs sprawled crookedly behind him. I couldn't determine whether Kudner had been hit or not. Each had fired eight or perhaps nine shots when Kudner suddenly jumped out into full view, pumping the gun in his left hand as fast as its mechanism would go, the gun in his right hand hanging at his side. or it had changed guns and was on his knees now, his fresh weapon keeping pace with the enemies. That couldn't last. Kudner dropped his left-hand gun and as he raised the other, he sagged forward and went down on one knee. Orrit stopped firing abruptly and fell over on his back, spread out full length. Kudner fired once more wildly into the ceiling and pitched down on his face. I sprang to Orrit's side and kicked both of his guns away. He was lying still, but his eyes were open. Are you Kudner or was he? He. Good, he said and closed his eyes. I crossed to where Kudner lay and turned him over on his back. His chest was literally shot to pieces. His thick lips worked, and I put my ear down to them. I get him. Yes. I lied. He's already cold. His dying face twisted into a triumphant grin. Sorry. Three in hotel. (coughs) He gasped hoarsely. Mistake. Wrong room. Got one. I had to... other two... protect myself... I... He shuddered and died. A week later, the hospital people let me talk to Orit. I told him what Kudner had said before he died. That's the way I doped it out. Orit said from out of the depths of the bandages
1: in which he was swathed. That's why I moved and changed my name the next day. I suppose you've got it nearly figured out by now, he said
0: after a while. No, I confessed. I haven't. I have an idea what it was about, but I could stand having a few details cleared up.
1: I'm sorry I can't clear them up for you, but I've got to cover myself up. I'll tell you a story, though, and it may help you. Once upon a time, there was a high-class crook what the newspapers call a mastermind. came a day when he found he had accumulated enough money to give up his game and settled down as an honest man. But he had two lieutenants, one in New York and the other in San Francisco, and they were the only man in the world who knew he was a crook, and beside that, he was afraid of both of them. So he thought he'd rest easier if they were out of the way. And it happened that neither of these lieutenants had ever seen each other. So, this mastermind convinced each of them that the other was double-crossing him and would have to be bumped off for the safety of all concerned. And both of them fell for it. The New Yorker went to San Francisco to get the other. And the San Franciscan was told that the New Yorker would arrive on such and such a day and would stay at such and such a hotel. The mastermind figured out there was an even chance of both men passing out when they met, and he was nearly right at that. But he was sure that one would die, and then, even if the other missed hanging, there would only be one man left for him to dispose
0: of later. There weren't as many details in the story as I would have liked to have, but it explained a lot. How do you figure out Kudner getting into the wrong room? I asked. That was funny. Maybe
1: it happened like this. My room was 609 and the killing was done in 906. Suppose Kudner went to the hotel on the day he knew I was due and took a quick slant at the register. He wouldn't want to be seen looking at it if he could avoid it, so he didn't turn it around, but flashed a look at it as it lay facing the desk. When you read figures upside down, you have to transpose them in your head to get them straight. Like 1, 2, 3. You'd get that, 3, 2, 1. And then turn them around in your head. That's what Cudner did with mine. He was keyed up, of course, thinking of the job ahead of him. And he overlooked the fact that 609 upside down still reads 609 just the same. So he turned it around and made it 906.
0: Devlin's Room. That's how I doped it, I said, and I reckon it's about right. And then he looked at the key rack and saw that 906 wasn't there, so he thought he just might as well get the job done right then, when he could roam the hotel corridors without attracting attention. Of course, he may have gone up to the room before Ansley and Devlin came in and waited for them, but I doubt it. I think it was more likely that he simply arrived at the hotel a few minutes after they had come in. Ansley was probably alone in the room when Cudner opened and unlocked the door and came in, Devlin being in the bathroom getting the glasses. Ansley was about your size and age and close enough in appearance to fit a rough description of you. Cudner went for him, and then Devlin, hearing the scuffle, dropped the bottle and glasses and rushed out, got his. Cudner, being the sort that he was, would figure that two murders was no worse than one and he wouldn't want to leave any witnesses around. And that's probably how Ingram got into it. He was passing on his way from his room to the elevator and perhaps heard the racket and investigated. And Kudner put a gun to his face and made him stow the two bodies in the clothes press. And then he stuck his knife in Ingram's back and slammed the door on him. That's about the... An indignant nurse descended on me from behind and ordered me out of the room accusing me of getting her patient excited. Or it stopped me as I turned to go. Keep your eye on the New York
1: dispatches he said, and maybe you'll get the rest of the story. It's not over yet. Nobody has anything on me out here. Paghetti's was self-defense as far as I'm concerned, and as soon as I'm on my feet again and can get back east, there's gonna be a mastermind holding a lot of lead. That's a promise.
0: I believed him. This episode was co-produced by Melissa Starr. The music in today's episode was provided by EpidemicSound.com. If you like pulp, please check out our sister podcast, The Curious Matter Anthology, a series that adapts short stories from famous authors in science fiction and horror into full-cast cinematically produced audio dramas, including our most recent two-part adaptation, The Supernatural Horror Detective Tale, Carnacky, Gateway of the Monster. You can check the show out at www.curiousmatterpodcast.com or anywhere you like to listen to podcasts. Pulp releases a new episode almost every week, so make sure to subscribe for free on the platform of your choice today, and if you can, leave us a five-star rating or review. You can also follow the show on Twitter at Pulp the Podcast, or reach out to me directly via email at jonathan at pulpthepodcast.com. I'm Jonathan Pezza, your host, and thank you for listening.